And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Today we are continuing our sermon series, the New Testament book of Ephesians, looking specifically at verses 11 and 12. Um, we keep inching our way ever closer to being finished with this, this early magnificent section in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to verse 14. And so remember that this, this section from verse 3 to verse 14 is really one long sentence of over 200 words in the original Greek text. And as we're preaching through it part by part, section by section, I've, I've been reading all of that long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14 because I, I'm wanting us to see both the trees and the forest. I'm wanting us to see the, um, the individual and the specific um, doctrines and theology that's emphasized here, as well as the praise and the doxology and the worship that we see in, uh, in Paul's prayer hymn in Ephesians 1. But I'm also not wanting us to miss the, the context of, of how all of this fits together. And so I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 14, even though I'm only going to preach on verse 11 and verse 12. And so hear now God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient life-giving word. Begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 under three headings. And these three headings aren't very creative. I've just taken key phrases from these two verses. And so we'll first look at um, how we have obtained an inheritance. Second, we've been predestined according to God's purpose. But in third, our hope in Christ to the praise of his glory. So, so first, we have obtained an inheritance. So look with me at, at verse 11. There's a lot here in verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's a lot there, and even there's a lot here that we've even covered already in, in Ephesians 1 because the Apostle Paul keeps repeating over and over again some of these same themes, but let's just take that, that first phrase, in him, so in Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. 
Now that phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is actually one word in the original Greek. And that word is, is a compound word which refers to something in the future that is certain to happen. And this one Greek word, this compound word, is, is actually a little difficult to translate. And so we have a couple of options for what it could mean. And so you see, it, it's a passive verb. Therefore, it could mean something a little different than how, what our ESV translation says. It could mean that we were made an inheritance. It's in the passive tense. We were made an inheritance which would mean that we have been made God's inheritance or that God has made us his inheritance. God has made us his own possession. Or the phrase could mean exactly what the ESV translation says. We have obtained an inheritance, that we possess an inheritance of and, and from God. So put another way, Paul either means that we have become God's own inheritance, God has taken us and chosen us to be his own, or we are heirs of God, meaning we have obtained an inheritance. Now, if you're, I hope you're thinking, Richard, aren't both true? And the answer is yes, both options are glorious truths that we find all throughout the Bible, that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, if Ephesians 1 verse 11 means that we, we were made God's possession, that we've been made God's inheritance, and we find support for this in what God said to Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. On the other hand, if Ephesians 1.11 means... We have obtained an inheritance, as our ESV translation says, then we find support for this in what Juan Carlos preached to us last Sunday evening from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, where Peter writes, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so if you look at verse, verse 4, I mean, did you see and hear this ultimate invincibility of the work of God in his people's lives? Do you hear that? Do you see this? This, this certain final inheritance. Verse 4 speaks of a final inheritance that, that, that is so incredible, right? We've been born again to a living hope. And it's so incredible that Peter could only think to describe it in terms of what it isn't. That it's, it's imperishable. It's not going to perish. It's undefiled. It will never be defiled. It's unfading. It's not going to fade away. It's going to be lasting. And we see that it's kept or it's guarded in heaven for us. But then you look at verse 5 and we see that it's we who are also being guarded through faith for our salvation. For our inheritance. And Juan Carlos brought these two truths together last Sunday evening. And I think these are the two truths that we see as options for what Ephesians 1.11 means. Is it that, that we have obtained an inheritance? We know that's true. Or is it that we have been made God's inheritance? We have been made God's possession. Or is it that they're both brought together? 
I, th- I think it's that we're both brought together. In fact, Richard Phillips argues this, that we see both of these views brought together, wedded together in Ephesians 1. Here's what he says. In verse 11, Paul means either that we have become heirs of God or that we have become God's own inheritance. In verse 14, which we'll look at closer next week, in verse 14, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, which argues for the former view, that we have obtained an inheritance. But verse 13 says that we are marked with a seal by the Spirit, which speaks of God's marking his own possession, which argues for the latter view that we have been made God's possession, that we have been made God's inheritance. Therefore, it seems that the best way to handle Paul's use of this term is to consider both perspectives. And praise God that throughout the Bible, believers are described as belonging to God, and God is spoken of as belonging to his people, brought together. That God belongs to us, he's our God, and we belong to him. We are his people. And that's a promise that we see echo all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a promise that's clearly stated in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is a promise that we've looked at before. When we, when we spent the short series in Ezekiel, we talked about this promise. And I refer to it as a promise as big as the Bible because it echoes all throughout the scriptures. So think about this, dear Christian. You are God's possession. You are. And through Christ, you have obtained a glorious inheritance. The Bible states this over and over again. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I think it's easy enough for us to wrap our heads around this, but what if we really understood this? What if we really understood it, and what if we lived in light of it? I mean, how would this truth that that, that you have obtained a glorious inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, and that you belong to God, that you are his possession, you are his inheritance, how, how would this truth, if we really understood it, how would it change your life, your priorities, your calendar, your, your checkbook, your prayer life, your obedience? Really everything. David Wells once said, it is the inextinguishable knowledge of being owned by the transcendent God that forms our character. And his ownership challenges every other contender so that we know that we belong to God and that changes everything. I mean, what if we understood the truth and believed it to the point that we lived as if there was nothing that we needed from the world? What if we lived only for the approval and the glory of our Heavenly Father and not for the approval and the applause of the world? Put another way, what if we desire to please and to obey and to honor and to glorify our Heavenly Father more than we cared about fitting in? so, So children, teenagers, college students, what if you lived only for the approval and the glory of your Heavenly Father? This is maybe directed more to younger children, but think about this, kids. It would change the way you treated your classmates. Even if your friends mistreated them and made fun of them, 
You wouldn't join in because you know that every one of your classmates has value, worth, and dignity because God made that person, that little girl, that little boy in his image. And you would know that even if your friends turned on you because you didn't join in with them in in their sin, in their disobedience, in their cruelty, that you you wouldn't join in. You wouldn't care because you would know that you are still God's possession. And you would know that through Christ you have received a glorious inheritance. And this is... This, this, same, this is also true in high school, in college, in young adulthood when the temptations with abusing alcohol and engaging in sexual morality come your way. That you can say to yourself, regardless of what the crowd thinks, regardless of, of, of whether this costs me those friends or not, I am still God's possession. And I know that through Christ, I have received a glorious inheritance. Therefore, I am going to live like I belong to God because I do. Because I really am his child. I really am his daughter. I really ha- am his son. He really is my father. And my heavenly father has given me his word, which is absolutely true. And he's given to it, it to me in love for my good. And the word of my heavenly father really is given to me in love. And it really is given to me for my good, for my greatest blessing. And I'm going to obey God's word. Not not because I think that by obeying God's word, I'm somehow earning God's love. But because I know that I am secure in the love of my heavenly father. That's why I want to obey his word. Because I've already uh, have it. I don't want to obey it so that maybe God will like me and maybe he would accept me. But rather, I want to obey his word because I know that he already does. That I belong to him. That he is my heavenly father. That I am his child. And adults, we we can and we should preach this to ourselves too. See, this truth is ours. It's ours, dear Christian, to be grasped. As John Calvin put it, we are not our own. We belong to God. We are God's, therefore, let us live for him and die for him. We are God's, let his wisdom and will, therefore, rule all our actions. That we are God's, let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. You see, dear brother and sister in Christ, you are God's possession. And through Christ, you have received a glorious inheritance. But do you understand this? Do you live in light of this truth? Now, our second heading is predestined according to God's purpose. And so look again at verse 11. There's a lot in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so that Greek word translated predestined means to foreordain, to predetermine, or as our translation indicates, to predestine. So it simply means what it says. Okay, there are no etymological tricks to play with this original Greek text here. And we've already looked closely at the doctrine of predestination and election as we've moved through Ephesians 1. And so we're coming back to it because Paul comes back to it. You see, we're coming back to it because God's word comes back to it. That God wants us to think about this. He wants us to understand this. And so think back to what, we, what we've already looked at at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Paul writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
Okay, so we learned weeks ago that predestination means that God determines something in advance. And what we see at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5 is that in love, in love, God the Father predestined, foreordained, predetermined that the elect would be saved and adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. Now look again at Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, simply put, if you're a Christian, then that's because God saved you. He chose you. He, he, he saved you. You say, but, but Richard, but I remember making a choice. Richard, I remember that I gave my life to Christ. Richard, I remember I raised my hand. I came forward. Richard, I remember that I repented of my sin. I turned to Christ. And, and I, I said, said, said to you before, I say it to you again. I'll, I'll keep saying it to you. I know you did. I know you did. I did too. But the point here that God's word keeps making is that I know you made a choice, but that God's choice long preceded your choice. See, everyone God saves, he first predestines for salvation according to the purpose of the counsel of his will. And this is not just, you know, cold, dead orthodoxy. This, this matters. That's why God's word talks about it so much. Listen to how Pastor Ian Hamilton fleshes this out. He says, all God does, he does according to the counsel of his will. He works in accordance with a preconceived plan. He's not influenced by anything or anyone outside himself. He does all he pleases. This is why there can never be a trace of self-congratulation in a Christian's thinking or behavior. No patting ourselves on the back that, you know, God must be glad that we, that we picked him, we chose to be on his team. God's predestination is far from being a doctrine to shun. It is the most comforting and reassuring of truths. It tells us that our God reigns. That he's never playing catch up and that behind the mayhem of a falling world are the directing wisdom and power of a good, gracious, and just God. And so think about this, dear Christian. Why were you predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ? Well, it was not because God looked down through the corridors of time and saw a choice you would make. It's not because God looked down through the corridors of time and saw who you would be. It's not because God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would be good, that you would be wise, that you would be moral, that you would be spiritual, that you would be worthy, and you would be distinguished from all the others. It was solely because of God's sovereign, gracious, and loving choice. It was because God loved you. And why did he love you? He loved you because he loved you. He loved you because he chose to set his love on you. In love he predestined us. And that's not just what we, we don't, we don't only see this in the New Testament, we see this in the Old Testament. Think about what we read in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. What God says about his people in the Old Testament, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your forefathers. So why did God choose the people of Israel? It was because he loved them. 
Okay, but why did God love them? Well, it was because he loved them. It was because he chose to set his love on them. Put another way, it was because of what was in God's heart for them rather than what was in their heart for God. As Ian Hamilton says, divine predestination is rooted in the heavenly Father's love, which is beyond our fathoming. But it is the same love that sent the Son of God into the world to be the Savior of the world. It is a love we can trust even when we cannot, through our present creaturely sinfulness, fully comprehend. So so God's choice to save us for the foundation of the world, God's choice to predestine us for adoption, was not some cold, sterile, abstract decision made by an uncaring and impersonal God. Rather, it's an act of love. It's an act of God's infinite, eternal, unchanging, and omnipotent love for sinners like us. As Jonathan Edwards put it, the doctrine of election and predestination has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And rightfully so, because absolute sovereignty is what God ascribes to himself in his word. Listen, listen again to Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you see, this, this is meant to be pastoral. This is meant to be a comfort to God's people. It's meant to be a comfort to you, dear Christian. And God's word says so much about election and predestination because we're prone to have an overinflated view of ourselves. And we're prone to believe the lie that we are masters of our own fate and captains of our own souls. But that's not the truth. And, and praise God that it's not. And so we need to be reminded of this truth because we tend to doubt God's love for us. And so we think that we have to keep working really hard to earn God's love or to maintain God's love. And what God wants you to know, understand, trust, remember, and rest is in the truth that you are loved, not because of what's in you, but because of what is in God's heart for you. Not because of what's in you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus, the Son, has accomplished for you, on your behalf, in his life, death, and resurrection. You see, God's choice to save you before the foundation of the world was not some cold, sterile, abstract decision made by an uncaring, impersonal God. It's an act of love. An act of God's infinite, eternal, unchanging, and omnipotent love for sinners like us. Now this brings us to our third heading. Our hope in Christ to the praise of his glory. And so look, look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now you're going to have to come back next Sunday to hear how we finish out this amazing, stunning, magnificent section of Ephesians 1. But um, when you do, you're going to see that there's a change in pronouns from verse 12 to verse 13 to verse 14. Okay, and here's what I mean. In verse 12, Paul uses we. In verse 12, Paul writes, we who were the first to hope in Christ. In verse 13, he uses you. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then in verse 14, he uses our. He speaks about our inheritance. So Paul uses we, you, and then our to refer to First, we who were the first to hope in Christ, that is, Christian Jews in verse 12. 
And then in verse 13, he uses you. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is, Gentile Christians, like many of the Ephesians he's writing to. And then in verse 14, Paul uses our, our inheritance, that is, the inheritance of all Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, this inheritance they share in Christ. Okay, so look again at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ. See, Paul says that the hope for Jews, for Gentiles, for you, for me, for everyone, for anyone, is Christ. There's no hope for sinners like you and me apart from Christ. That redemption from the guilt of, and slavery to our sins is only found in Christ. It's only found in his shed blood. As we've talked about before, our, all of our good deeds, all of our best efforts can never ever redeem us from our sins. All of our best efforts, all of our good deeds can never ever pay for, can never ever cancel out, can never ever make up for our sin. It simply can't. We must trust in Christ. Christ alone is our hope. See, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many resolutions we make, no matter how much we decide, you know what, I'm going to white knuckle my way to being better, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps, now I'm going to finally turn over a new leaf, I'm going to clean my life up, no matter how hard we try, we will never, ever, ever measure up to God's standard of righteousness. All of our own attempts at self-made righteousness will come up short. They will all fall short. They will all fail. They'll never be good enough. Christ alone is our hope. We must believe. We must trust. We must rest in Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection. See, our hope is in Christ. It's in him. See, Jesus died for our sins, and through him, through our union with Christ, we're forgiven, and we're washed clean from the guilt of our sin, and we're set free from the enslaving power of our sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the demands of righteousness, and in him, in Christ, our hope is in Christ, through our union with Christ, we're justified, and we're clothed in his robes of righteousness. Jesus rose from the grave, and through him, our hope is in him, through our union with Christ, we have been raised to new spiritual life. We've been born again. We've been given new hearts. We're enabled now to walk in newness of life. In all of this, the forgiveness, the redemption, our election, our adoption, all of this is really means to an end. It's really means to an end, more so than an end in themselves. And it's means to a glorious, God-glorifying end. And we see this in Ephesians 1, verse 12. Did you catch that? Look at Ephesians 1, 12 again. Look at the end of the verse. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. See, there is indeed a great end far above our salvation. As wonderful and as glorious as our salvation is, and that great end is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. And that's what we see at the end of verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Then you come back next Sunday, and we finish through the end of verse 14, and the end of verse 14 also says, to the praise of his glory. And so why is Paul doing this? Why is he talking so much about God's glory and to the praise of his glory? He's calling us in this, at the end, okay, at the end of this hymn prayer, this magnificent, stunning section of Scripture, Ephesians 1, 3 to verse 14, he's calling us to lift our gaze, to lift our gaze, to lift our focus, to turn our focus 
from us in the self-centeredness that we tend to gravitate towards and to put it on God, to lift our gaze above ourselves, above our circumstances, and to think about the glory of God. Now, on the one hand, this is a challenge for us to lift our gaze and think bigger and think deep, more deeply about the glory of God. On the other hand, nothing could be more basic. Nothing could be more basic to the, in the Christian life. I want to prove it to you, okay? I look around the room, there's lots of parents and grandparents here. No doubt lots of folks who grew up in Presbyterian churches. Are you guys familiar with the children's catechism? Okay, I see a few heads nodding. I know you are. We give them out like crazy here. And so it's not, it's not, not the shorter catechism, but the children's catechism. It's even shorter. Um, some of you are thinking, you know what, let's, let's use that. Okay, but the children's catechism. Now, if you've, ever, if, if you've ever been given a children's catechism, I know this, parents, you, you've taken it, you've opened it up, you thought, you know what, I'm going to try this out. And I'm willing to bet that whenever you tried it out, probably even that first night, you made it through question three. Now, soon it becomes a little hard, but everybody gets through question three. I'm going to prove it to you. Question one, who made you? The answer is God. Question two, what else did God make? God made all things. Question three, why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. So we're talking, see, Paul's calling us to, to lift our gaze and to think more deeply about the glory of God. But we all know this is very basic stuff. This is one of the very first things we catechize our children in. That God made them and all things for his own glory. So, dear Christian, why did God save you? Dear Christian, why did God in love predestine you to be adopted to himself through, as the sons through Jesus Christ? Why did God save you? Listen to the answer we have in Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Sinclair Ferguson says, God does all this to the praise of his glory. But his glory is not the enemy of our good. In fact, he pursues his own glory in such a way that he simultaneously brings his people most blessing. His pleasure and our blessing are marriage partners. His glory and our greatest joy are marriage partners. They're wedded together. And we know this, don't we? So we've been talking about the children's catechism. So let's think about the a step up, the, the shorter catechism. Shorter Catechism, question one. Most of us know this. If, if you've been coming to our church for some time and you use the main entrance, you walk right by this answer every single Sunday. Right, what, Shorter Catechism, question one. Ask, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right there. The glory of God and our joy wedded together. Wedded together. And guess what? This table reminds us of this. Jesus offered himself, offered his body, shed his blood 
for our greatest good, for our greatest blessing, for our salvation. And yet also he offered himself and he shed his blood to the praise of the glory of God. And so who made you? God. Why did God choose you? Why did he predestine you? Why did he save you through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Why have you received a glorious inheritance in Christ? Why did God make you his own possession? For his own glory and for your greatest joy and greatest blessing. As Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you and we praise you for sending your son to live, die, rise from the grave, to purchase salvation for sinners like us. We thank you and we praise you for giving us your word. We pray that you would impress, you would, you would ingrain these eternal truths, write these eternal truths upon our hearts. And even now as we silently prepare to come to this table, please hear our silent prayers in preparation to receive this holy sacrament.